Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer. And we are of Worker Being, and we're joined here today uh, with the Healthy Work Podcast. Do you want to introduce yourselves? I'm Keaton Fletcher. And I'm Mariana Arbon. And today we're going to be talking about the science practice gap, which is the gap between what researchers are interested in examining and publishing papers on and what practitioners actually need to answer real world pressing questions in their businesses and uh, the gap that sometimes exists between uh, what we're studying and what managers actually want to know the answer to. Um, And this gap is kind of frustrating because there's lots of good work out there that managers might not have access to or might not know where to find or that might not exist. Uh, And so our podcasts both exist to sort of fill that gap. And we're going to talk about that today in terms of what we're trying to do to solve that problem as well as uh, where the field might go from here. So uh, I guess to kick off our discussion, we're so excited to um, be here together and to have all of you listening. Um, So for the Healthy Work Podcast, can you talk a little bit about how your podcast aims to address this issue, kind of what you're doing with your podcast and what uh, what your hopes and goals are for bringing this stuff closer to practice? Absolutely. So we are a bi-weekly podcast or fortnightly uh, to (laughs) reduce that confusion because apparently bi-weekly can be twice a week. Um, And for us, it really was born of a frustration with the scientist practitioner gap um, that we're going to be talking about of we like the work that we do. We find it really interesting, but even trying to convey it to our parents or our friends, it's not very um, innately accessible with Mm -hmm. the way that we publish it. And so we wanted to get the research out there to people who can actually use it um, in a way that's accessible. And I figured if you can learn constitutional law or music theory through podcasts, uh, which I <laughs> love podcasts, uh, you can definitely learn about the basics of occupational health psychology, of industrial organizational psychology, and how what we're doing can help your wellness. Mm-hmm. I love that. So actually, why don't we back up a second, since I know our listeners don't know you, and we'll introduce ourselves a little bit more too, but maybe the two of you want to just tell us a tiny bit about you as well, in addition to obviously all the great things you're doing with the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump in first. So uh, my name is Mariana Arvon, and I am an assistant professor of industrial organizational psychology at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Um, and I'm really passionate about worker well-being, so that's kind of where I do all my research. And um, yeah, Keaton and I started this as he as he mentioned because uh, we really feel that occupational health psychology is one of the coolest areas and the most important um, societally um, and scientifically that industrial organizational psychology has to offer, and yet very few people know about it. So. I'm excited to be here and to talk about it and and to sort of talk about how we can narrow the gap. Keaton? Yeah, I'm also an assistant professor of industrial organizational psychology at Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, And like you guys, Mariana and I met in grad school. um, And so we've been friends ever since. And we're excited to do this uh, passion project together. Yes, Great. So for us, um, I'll introduce myself first. So I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I am outnumbered with all the academics on this (laughs) podcast. Um, I am not an academic. I do have my degree in industrial organizational psychology as well. Um, And my co-founder, Katina, Um, we met in grad school too. So we're, you know, all all grad school friends. Mm. (laughs) You do a lot of bonding in grad school. So this is how (laughs) (laughs) podcasts get birthed through that (laughs) friendship, I guess. (laughs) 
Um, but anyway, so I've been working in practice ever since I left graduate school. I've been consulting with clients on a variety of different um, issues concerning IO psychology. So things like selection, assessment, you know, help helping find who's the best person to hire, things like that. Um, but I've also been focused on workplace wellness. It's always been a passion of mine. And to the whole point in this conversation, there isn't as much work being done on the wellness side of things, leveraging the research the way that um, it should be leveraged to make organizations more effective and to help employees thrive in those organizations. So from the practice side of things, I see that gap. It's always been very frustrating for me. And actually, that's where Katina and I came in to build worker being is because of that gap. We want to make sure that organizations can have access to good information. So obviously, the podcast is one place. We also have articles on our website. And then we work with organizations directly to help create better work environments. So our goal is very similar to the Healthy Work Podcast goal and making sure that we bridge that gap and we get some of this really great, interesting research into the right people's hands. So that's a little bit about me and worker being. Katina, do you want to introduce yourself too? Yeah. So uh, I am uh, Katina Sawyer, and I am an assistant professor of management at the George Washington School of Business. Um, and previously, I was an assistant professor of psychology at uh, Villanova University, and then I decided to uh, leave and go to a business school and start my tenure clock over. So I'm quite a masochist in that way, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, you know, with regard to the science practice gap and why Patricia and I got into these conversations and starting um, our podcast and, you know, worker being as an entity more broadly, is there's so much like blood, sweat, and tears that goes into research and, you know, happy tears, sad tears, whatever. But there's so much that goes into it. And, um, you know, the process is so long and arduous and rigorous. And I think that it was starting to frustrate me that, um, you know, we do all this work and a paper comes out and you're like, woohoo. And then like, what happens to it? Like other (laughs) academics cite it, read it, cite it, whatever. And then, and then like, but does a manager utilize it? Do employees find it and say, this is cool. I'm going to bring this up with my leadership. Like there's not enough of that happening. And mm-hmm. it's not really that people need to read the article to get a sense of what they could do with it, but rather that they need to know what was found and what's interesting about it and what they can do with it. Um, and so I think all of us are kind of jointly um, interested in giving people that kind of tools and that's empowering, but it's also solving this big problem that we have of like, there's really great stuff out there, but like no one's seeing it as a responsibility to like make sure it's utilized. Absolutely. And there's not really a lot of reward for those of us in academia, at least like, uh, for Mariana and I, this podcast isn't going to help us get tenure. No one's, no one cares that we're doing it as far as our jobs go. (laughs) It really is just because of passion and trying to translate a lot of what we do for things like Harvard Business Review or any sort of more easily accessed outlets. No one in academia really cares right now. <laughs> set up that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you know, I'm kind of lucky in the sense that um, Herman McGinnis is my department chair, and he is the person that wrote an article that we're going to be talking about in a second or one of the co-authors along with Wayne Cassio that wrote this article that we're going to be talking about, which is basically about the science practice gap. And so I'm lucky in the sense that he does firmly believe that translational issues are a very important part of what we do, but he can't control as a department chair, like what my university cares about or what other universities might care about to, if you know, if you're trying to be marketable. Right. So, um, 
you know, you're right. Like it just kind of is like a, oh, that's a hobby. Just like, you know, maybe you like to go for a run right. or, uh, you know, whatever. But, you know, your podcast is a hobby, but it doesn't have like a lot of um, academic value. Whereas I think there should be more incentive around engaging in these kinds of not just translational efforts, but community efforts or working with companies like um, we have expertise in these areas that could be shared much more broadly. Absolutely. And that, that's such a great point. Um, the behaviors that we are rewarded for, the outcomes that we are rewarded for, uh, basically, I think, in many ways, reinforce this gap. Uh, we are not uh, necessarily encouraged via incentives to really spend time translating it. And I, I think it's, it's a shame because really, in my experience, the more that I see in practice, the more that it enriches my own research, right? So it, it just it needs reframing, in my view. Yeah. And then from the practice side of things, you know, we're not encouraged. Well, I don't know about encouraged, but we're not incentivized to go in and read research again, right? You leave grad school, you go into consulting and working in the field. You're not always given time or opportunities to spend on reading a lot of research and keeping up with what's going on. So there is a gap on the practice side too. You know, we're applying everything that we learned in school and some best practices. And then I think there's some things that people just do in the field just from experience. So they're learning from others over over time that maybe wasn't in the research that we learned in graduate school. But then anything new coming out, it takes a while for practitioners to really get their hands on it because most of the time you're so busy with client work or you know if you're internal working within your organization you may not be always focused on what new research is coming out and and not focus on it more broadly either if you're working in one area like let's just say you're working in selection and you're hiring assessments mm -hmm. you're probably going to be focusing on those types of research articles that are coming out or when you go to a conference you might go to sessions about that but you're not keeping up with other stuff that might be useful or might impact what you're doing. So I think that there's a gap too in terms of how practitioners are incentivized in keeping up with what is going on in the research. Yeah. And I think it depends. I mean, thankfully, you've been kind of lucky in working for Infor right now, um, at least, uh, where they, you know, you go to PSYOP and there's a, a culture where people are at least engaging in that. Um, initially, before I thought about going into academe I was working for um like a million years ago iteration of SHL so it was a long time ago and they're under completely different leadership now but I remember when I initially joined they were really into research and um allowing the consultants to present at PSYOP and uh they got taken over by folks that were not IOs and all of a sudden it was like no one goes to PSYOP there's, you know, we're not funding that. There's no value in you presenting research. We don't want you spending time on putting together any research as a result of client projects. And like, that was so like, oh, like it made my heart so sad because it really is important uh, to be able to have these conversations. And without having practitioners at PSYOP talking with academics, like that's one venue where we can really like make use of this. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much variance. It, just like you said, there's so much variance in uh, the degree to which practitioners are incentivized. Um, I have heard friends from grad school tell me, nobody cares if I go, go to PSYOP, it's out of my own pocket. 
I really can't afford, you know, uh, to spend that time there. And then I have others who are, you know, who are at companies where they put together sessions and they do panels. And um, obviously the latter is what we're all going to be advocating here for, for obvious reasons, because it's just <laughs> good. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a really good, healthy sort of push and pull and sort of reminder that we're all sort of trying to fuel each other and sort of improve, um, improve really things on both sides. Yeah. And I think the article that we talked about or that we're going to be talking about. So this is an article uh, by um, Cassio and a Guinness. Uh, it was published in 2008. So it's a little bit older, but they basically looked at all of the trends from 1963 to 2007 in personnel psychology and journal of applied psychology. So the two top IO journals. Um, although I will say that um, thankfully for all of us, Journal of um, Occupational Health Psychology's impact factor has like skyrocketed in the last mm -hmm. few years, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they looked at JAP and PSYCH and uh, tried to examine kind of what are the broad topical areas that people publish in and what are the specific sub areas that people publish in and what does that tell us about the history of the field? And just to give like a one sentence summary of relevance to this and then I'll open it up for more conversation is like they basically uncovered a bunch of topics and sub areas that were you know examined within these uh, articles over time and areas that are relevant to what we're interested in like stress burnout role conflict role ambiguity work family issues all of those things ended up at the very very bottom in terms of they didn't even emerge as a major uh, theme but even within the sub dimensions they were at the bottom of the of the rankings in terms of how much people focus on them so I'm curious to hear what everyone's thoughts are in terms of how that's changed maybe um, and and what you'd like to see happen in the future so that the next however many years look a little different. I'm going to do a quick pause, too, really quick for those that don't know what an impact factor is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, they, so we're talking about, like, the top journals in the field. So the two that Katina mentioned, um, Journal of Applied Psychology, Personal Psychology, those two well, have historically been considered the top journals. So if you're an academic, you really want to be publishing in those because they account for more. Um, they're they're treated as more important when it comes to tenure, things like that in academia. Um, so when Katina mentioned that the Journal of Occupational Health Psychology's impact factor has gone up, that means it's become more important in the field and is seen as a better journal to be publishing in from a tenure perspective, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so that's kind of a, a very, very high level thank summary you. of what that means. <laughs> but I thought that might be important. <laughs> that is. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'll take a stab at that. My so I have a personal philosophy that if you're studying performance as an outcome, which we saw in that article, most of the or, uh, most of the published articles are looking at performance in some way. So my personal philosophy is that like ethically, you ought to also look at stress or well-being or some sort of outcome in that component because we all have seen too many times, um, either anecdotally or through empirical evidence, that increases in performance often come with unintended uh, decreases in the well-being of the workers. And we're at a point now where caring about the well-being of your employees gives your company competitive advantage in a lot of ways. And then obviously is the morally right thing to do. Um, and so I think as far as research moving forward, I would love, love to see JP say, if you're looking at performance as an outcome, you would also better include some sort of well-being outcome or measure to show that whatever changes in performance this intervention or this predictor show, it doesn't come at the cost of well-being because if we have two um, interventions or two predictors, one increases performance but decreases well-being and 
the other one doesn't. It just increases performance. Obviously, we should choose that latter one, but if we don't have the evidence to pick, then we're kind of out of luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I, I think that's a, a really, really uh, important uh, thing to point out, which is that societally, our, societally, our values have changed um, it, for the better, in my view, right? Um, we understand just how important it is um, to really think about the whole worker, to think about you know, not just their performance, but their health, their well-being. And, um, you know, to understand that if you have certain practices in place and if you're, you know, current with evidence-based practices, you can really have a nice um, complementary um, process for these workers where they are able to perform well, but they're also sort of healthy and and, and safe and, and, and try to flourish as much as they can, right? Um, but what's so interesting to me is that I see that uh, I think that it's getting better in psychology. I, I do think that some of this gap is improving between, uh, you know, performance versus wellness. We still have miles to go. Uh, but in business, I don't see that it's moved much. So uh, just some perspective. Um, I know, obviously, uh, we have academics here both in, in psychology and in business schools. And I think, you know, when I went on the job market, I interviewed at business schools and I was, you know, speaking to deans who have a background in finance um, or accounting. And their view is kind of, why do you do this sort of fluffy worker health stuff, right? Like, what is this? This isn't supposed to be here in our school of business. Uh, So I think that there is also that going on, which is that in some of the more business-oriented journals, right, um, the Academy of Management Journal, which is also very prestigious and more business-focused, there's, there's, I think that this gap has continued to persist and it's been, it's been tougher to close because people don't understand um, in, in business schools as much necessarily about, the importance of worker wellness and affecting companies' bottom lines. And I think from organizations' perspective, there's such a mix too. Yeah. Um, so it does remind me a little bit about what's going on with psychology and business schools, where there are some industries where people are better about this, where companies care more about wellness. There are other industries where they don't. Um, there's definitely, I think, a shift in the right direction, but it kind of depends a little bit on who's in charge of the organization, what their values are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of variability, mm-hmm. um, even within organizations. If you're looking at a really big company, there might be teams, um, departments, you know, certain VPs and leaders that care about it and are focusing on it, and other people within the same company um, have completely different experiences. So it does vary a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, hopefully, over time, we see that continue to shift towards the positive where um, the entire worker is being considered in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we're raising a lot of really important but thorny issues in terms of, okay, in academia, there's kind of a lack of incentive to study these things because uh, they're seen as more fringy um, and less mainstream. And you may get questioned more about why you're, as someone who studies diversity and inclusion, I know that that is something that I've encountered as well. People don't really understand, well, what's what's the point? Who Who cares about inclusion unless it impacts some sort of bottom line outcome that we can point to, right? Um, and so I think I think that that's a thorny problem of incentives and uh, how academics are incentivized to participate in these kinds of activities. From a practice perspective, how do we educate people better about 
why a well-being related outcome might be important as uh, not even just as a leading um, indicator of performance ultimately, but like is as an indicator in and of itself. So I'm curious kind of just to hear uh, maybe some some closing thoughts from both the academics here and from Patricia as our uh, resident practitioner at the at this <laughs> point. Um, what do you think people can do or what should we do about these issues that could help solve this problem? I think immediately on the academic side, speaking as an academic, is learning how to publish your work in outlets that are easily accessible by the uh, by the public, whether that's going on podcasts like Ours or Yours or publishing in Harvard Business Review or HR Magazine. Um, and oftentimes it's not going to be rewarded by your um, institution, though increasingly we're starting to see that media coverage line on uh, the CVs of academics. And so maybe it is shifting that direction. So just recognizing that it's important to get our work on well-being out there to the public and that sometimes you're just going to have to do it because you think you ought to and it's important to you, um, though it might not necessarily boost your career. From the practitioner side, I think we need to be, as practitioners, we need to be steeped in the research as much as we can. So even if going back to the incentive piece, even if we're not incentivized internally within our organization, you know, being able to kind of understand what's happening, what trends are out there, even just looking at abstracts of articles and journals, you know, we have the experience and the knowledge of reading these types of articles and research to understand what's going on. So we need to be um, advocates for that research as people that have the same background as our academic partners, um, but we're in the businesses, we're in the organizations talking to leadership. So we need to bring that new research to the leaders that we're talking to and making sure that we're explaining the reason why things like wellness are important. What's the business case? Um, and I think the more we can share that information, the more we can spread that knowledge within organizations, the better and the more likely that projects will come from that and trying to make workplaces more effective um, from a thrive thriving perspective, really helping employees thrive within the organization. So I think being that advocate within companies is really where the practitioner lies. And then hopefully that can push businesses to move in the right direction. Absolutely. So one of the things that um, both of these comments made me think about is that we need more academic practitioner teams, just like you guys, right? Um, that I, I think that's, that's so valuable because um, when you have those partnerships, when you have people on both sides who are sort of working together and have a common goal, it just, it, it, it's really, there's a beautiful sort of symbiosis there. So I have a, a friend who uh, asked me recently, she's been in practice for ages, and she said, I don't know any of the updated sites on employee engagement and burnout. Can you send me maybe, you know, 10 good articles from like maybe the last eight years since I took my comprehensive exams? And I said, yep, absolutely. I got you. Right. Uh, and, 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 and also when I, when I have questions too, you know, when I'm training my own graduate students, some of whom are going to go into practice, I can talk to her and ask her about, you know, things companies are saying. So I think partnerships like that are really, really valuable and can help close a gap. Yeah, totally. And and I think just to uh, kind of share my thoughts and then we'll uh, let you know how you can get more information about this. Um, I think that, you know, if you're a dean, start thinking about what students care about. I hate to sell it in terms of the business case, but start thinking about what students care about. Like students don't, MBA students don't enroll in our programs because 
you know, the faculty member published an academy management journal article. They want to take a class with somebody who's in Harvard Business Review or they want to take a class with somebody who has a pop press book or that they've seen on Good Morning America or whatever, right? Um, that's what brings students to a program. That's what people are interested in. So I think thinking about it, um, at least initially from that perspective, could get some people to come around on, oh, maybe this is an important thing to do. Um, and I also think as a field, we need a better value value add for people. Like there are a lot of smart people that want to make an impact in the world in a positive way from a wellness perspective. And I don't know how much academe has to offer these smart young people who want to see the impact of their work right away. Um, so I think that we need to start thinking about like, what's our value proposition to those really intelligent people that want to see an impact um, and how can we best position ourselves for the future to do that um, so that we can continue producing really great research from really great scholars that then practitioners can leverage. And if you're a leader, listen to the research and follow the science because I think that's mm -hmm. really important too. Um, so this has been awesome. This is a great conversation. We could probably talk about this for an hour, uh, but uh, we'll wrap it up here. And for anybody who's interested in getting more information about the Healthy Work Podcast, where can they find you? So you can subscribe to our podcast on just about any podcatching software. Um, and you can find us at our website, which is healthyworkpodcast.com. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> Awesome. And then for us, for Worker Being, you can find us on our website, workerbeing.com. You can find us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Worker Being. And you can also feel free to email us if you have any questions, thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at contact at workerbeing.com. Thanks for listening. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabar and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.